ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Everybody, it's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And we are going well outside of our comfort zone. This might be our first foreign film that we've ever done on the podcast. <laughs> I believe so. I was going to say, I don't even think we've done a British film, which we should. We need to go to other continents. We are going all the way to Japan talking about the 1952 Kira Kurosawa feature, Ikaru. What a light and exciting spring break trip to Japan for us. (laughs) When we brought Drea on, this was one of the first films that she had said that she wanted to do. And I was like, okay, I've never heard of this. And then we looked it all up and we're like, a two and a half hour Japanese drama about a man with cancer. When Drea suggests a movie, (laughs) she suggests a movie. (laughs) A lighthearted romp through a man figuring out the meaning of life. I did put this on and I was thinking of it almost in a counter-programming way, largely in what I have to do for my own viewing, because I am someone who could just consume a constant diet of rom-coms and musicals with a few thrillers and noir sprinkled in. So I need some kind of vegetables in there and some nutrients and sustenance of depth that keep the mind engaging in different ways. And I think when I put Akuru on our list, it was with that in mind. We had just talked about a couple of things that, again, I adore. But one of the things I love about film is how widespread it is and what it can unlock in you in terms of thought provocation and artistry. So I was very delighted that you guys were willing and eager to take the Akuru travel with me. I'm very happy that you suggested something so far out of left field, because I would have never suggested this at any point in time. Both Sam and I admitted on the last episode that we were woefully underversed in the world of Kurosawa. I believe I've only seen one movie of his, and that would be Yojimbo, which is a very different movie. And I really like that movie. I've been eager to see other films. I know Ran is also one that I get suggested a lot as an English major because it's all based on Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Kurosawa, Orson Welles, and I think even Polanski were the people who had really strong Shakespearean, but especially Macbeth threads through some of their films. And Kurosawa, it's double interesting doing this one because he does have a lot of stuff that's more in our wheelhouse. I don't know the exact number, but he made almost 60 films as a director, especially for a couple of decades, he was making a movie a year and not just like, oh, I made a Hallmark holiday film, no diss to the people making Hallmark holiday films, but he was making masterpieces, Rashomon and The Seven Samurai. His output and how it affects contemporary directors and directors of his time, it was pretty unheard of. Kurosawa made 33 features as a director. Okay, well, I wanted it to be 60. I'm not sure why. (laughs) (laughs) He was working all the way up until 1993, although he did write 78 films. That includes television shows, shorts, so he was writing a lot. I'm sure that's where I was coming from. I'm sure I didn't just pick up a number at random. (laughs) Well, Sam, you admitted last episode, hadn't really delved into the Kurosawa filmography. What is your background with him before we watch this movie? I'm completely in the same boat as you. I've only seen one, but the one that I've seen is Rushamon, which I actually watched for the TCM bingo game that they had going on. It said you had to watch a foreign film and that's the one that was on and that's the one that I watched and I really loved it. The thing is, I have to admit that as far as classic cinema and my forte, I would say that I sort of specify in 30s to 60s escapist Hollywood. So in that vein, I'm really not well versed in silent film, and I'm really not well versed in foreign film. It's, it's similar to what you were saying, Christian, I have to have it put in front of me 
for me to be able to sit down and enjoy it. It's not that I dislike any of those genres in any way. It's just not something that I necessarily gravitate towards. And I really did enjoy Rashomon when I watched that and I got the opportunity to do that. And then as far as foreign films up until this point, most of my expertise has been Italian cinema. I really love Marcello Mastroianni and Sofia Loren and Vernalisi, that kind of 60s Italian cinema, also escapist, but also realistic. Japanese cinema, I'm really new to, but I'm really liking it so far. When I figured out we were going to watch another Kurosawa film, I was like, yeah, we're going to get some more hot Toshiro Mifune. Yes, and then no, no, that was not the case, but I was still excited to see it. I agree with you on Mifune. I think he's beautiful. Because of that probably would have been a distraction in this movie because I would have wanted it to keep going back to him. There were a couple bespectacled bureaucratic workers that caught my eye, but it is not really a movie that is about inspiring lust. Silence in foreign films tend to be a lot of classic film people's blind spots. A lot of film viewers' blind spots because there's no way that you can't not pay attention. You have to be focused, whether that's because of the foreign language or because there is no dialogue. A lot of people tend to just ignore those movies because they know they have to be 100% focused on what is being put in front of them. And that's really sad, especially as we get more invested in our phones and social media and all of that, that we can't spend two hours watching a movie with subtitles. But I feel like we've been saying that for years, even before phones became a thing. I always do have those blind spots where I'm like, I should really watch more foreign cinema. And the foreign cinema that I've watched in general of the classic era, the studio era, tends to be, like Sam was saying, from France. England is a big one that I get to. Italian. I give it a go. I know I don't understand it, but I try very hard. Japanese cinema has so much Western influences as well as its own cultural specificity that I feel like it should be more accessible to us as Westerners than it often is given credit for. That's a good point. I happened to notice while I was watching this film in particular how Western they dressed, the kind of Western themes of automation, boring nine-to-five routine life. It's, It's a very Western style, a very Western way of living, and it's not something that you immediately connect to a Japanese film or Japanese culture. So I was really surprised by that too. If they had essentially whitewashed this, it would have just looked like it had been made in America. One of the elements that's great when you do start digging into cultures and film language that you're not normally in is the universality of it. Just to blow your mind before we dig in to describe what this film is about, I'm assuming there's a number of people who might listen to this who aren't as familiar with the film. One of the best things that I noticed, I'll describe it first if that works for you guys. Ikuru means to live. And as such, what you're doing in this film is following this man who is, I'd say his late sort of 60s. He has a grown son with an angry wife who live with him. He has worked in a bureaucratic, possibly government position for years and years and years and years. And primarily what he's just doing is stamping papers. He's a cog in the machine that seems to get nothing done, which is the beauty of bureaucracy. Near the beginning of the film, he finds out, sort of, that he has stomach cancer and has less than a year to live. And the manner in which he's told this is pretty amazing too, because it's a doctor who really won't admit that that's what he has. But again, that's part of a cultural element. This is a man who is looking up and realizing that he's wasted his life away and wondering what meaning is. While this happens, a young woman who has to seek him out because he's gone missing from the office as he's pondering his mortality. And she needs that fantastic rubber stamp so that she can quit 
and begin working in something more life-fulfilling, which is creating toys for children, they interact and he sees a spark of life in her and a joy and a, a sense of purpose. And he starts to wonder what can he do that's different to change his life, to imbue it with some actual meaning at the end, and decides that this bureaucratic tangle that had been put up at the beginning of these mothers complaining about a cesspool in their neighborhood, he wants to turn it into a playground for their children. That's his final act, and it's very beautiful. That's also the thing I wanted to make sure we were all aware of, the similarities of that to the plot line of the first season of Parks and Recreation which is something that did not occur to me until this time that I watched it again. Did that ping either of you? I unfortunately do not watch Parks and Rec, so I, I did not don't either. It. Oh, that's funny. Parks and Rec is the Amy Poehler show where she plays a bureaucrat in local government. Literally the first season is about there's a massive hole near their house and they want the lot turned into a playground. And I honestly was like, I cannot believe Parks and Rec is referencing Ikuru, and I never realized it. <laughs> it does sound very similar. Oh, yeah. You're bringing up references to other things. I saw a lot of comparison to Frank Capra. Oh. I'm sure people have written pages about how Akira Kurosawa's work is similar to Frank Capra. If somebody has, feel free to let me know about it. I saw a lot of Capra in the sense that Frank Capra as a director tended to look at the small guy coming up against corporate bureaucracy and usually having some sort of life or death existential crisis over it. If you've seen something like Meet John Doe or American Madness. I saw a lot of that in the sense that you have Kanji Watanabe, who is our Lee, played by Takashi Shimura, who is this cog in the wheel. He's been seemingly content with his life in the sense that he's not necessarily upset or bitter about it. He just exists. It's not until this life-changing news affects him that he decides to try to do something. Western movies have done this, this whole I'm gonna die, live my last year's YOLO type of movie. In this case, he does go out and tries to spend some money and gets a little drunk, hires women of the night. He's not necessarily happy with that. That's not what he wants. Really, it's about trying to leave one good thing. His journey is very small scale compared to how a Westerner would direct this as being almost like Christmas in July, Preston Sturges, where I'm just going to give out my money to the poor and try to do this global change. Watanabe's thing is more centrally located. He just wants to do one good thing that's not going to register for anybody except the women that are affected by it. And that's it. And that's more than enough for him. That's such a good point. And I wonder if that is part of that cultural difference as well, that he's not doing anything for outer recognition, but for personal fulfillment, and how what we're taught as we grow in terms of what to prioritize or what to strive for culturally might have led his character in that direction. And I love that you brought up Capra because I totally agree. There's that famous idea of looking for the meaning of life as your narrative, as your protagonist journey, which has been touched on in different ways. We talked about Orson Welles earlier, and obviously the Citizen Kane of it, it almost be an archaeological dig of figuring out, because that's something that Ikuru does as well. We see a lot of his journey firsthand, and we're with him, but also we're watching the people around him because he has not shared this information with them. So they do not know why he's behaving like he is. It's such a f interesting disconnect. I didn't bring up Citizen Kane because there's always been that fascinating structure of it, right? Of like how you're revealing these layers of a person's life that you can never really know. Did you guys have any other references that stood out to you or other films that felt like-minded, even if a little different? I would definitely say the very first film that I thought to compare this to was Chaplin's Modern Times. 
I would say it's very similar in the sense that he's this small guy who's a small part of this larger corporate machine. He does the same thing day in, day out. He wonders if there's more of a larger meaning to life. And then he meets the free-spirited, carefree girl and wants to be more like her. And they build this ideal life together not quite like Ikrub but in a similar way he admires her and her spirit and I definitely saw that the similarity so you could even make the comparison at the end they walk off into to the sunset to a better life as his character does too in Ikrub I have to bring up the idea of Watanabe's relationship with his son which seemed very reminiscent of Douglas Sirk, even though Sirk was not really hitting his high point by 52. Tempted to say Sirk might have been influenced by Kurosawa. If anybody's seen a Douglas Sirk film, the sense of family is very fragile. It's steeped in backbiting. Fathers and sons tend to have this really antagonistic relationship, which is probably because Douglas Sirk's own son became a Nazi. Compared to what Westerners look at Japanese relationships as being very rooted in family honor, there's not that real relationship between Watanabe and his son, even though he has essentially lived for his child all these years, working hard so that his his son is comfortable and being there for him when his mother dies and when he goes off to war. But said son sees him as a bother, that he's not giving him enough money for him and his wife to live. that He's just a disappointment. Even during Watanabe's funeral, which, yes, spoiler, he dies about two hours into the movie, he doesn't say anything. All the other bureaucratic characters say stuff, but he doesn't say anything to eulogize his father or to even repent for his ways. There's no come-to-Jesus moment where he's talking about realizing all the things that his father has done for him. It's a really sad look at the fact that sometimes your family can be disappointing. The respect that you feel you should get for caring for somebody for so long doesn't always happen, even in death. I don't want to say it's a nihilistic, don't have kids idea, but it does make you think that unlike other movies where people tend to be eulogized, as we've seen with very sanitized Hollywood biopics lately. You don't always get that. You don't always get that moment where somebody realizes like, oh, I've been horrible. I should appreciate that. There's this idea of what your family members will hold on to as their ultimate idea of what you were. So the wife dies when he's young and he becomes very dedicated to this young son and does everything for him. But the moments they have to illustrate their relationship are fascinating. There's This moment where the son, he's playing a baseball game and he's done this incredible thing and Watanabe is about to brag about him and then the son screws up in the game and the dad sits down kind of in shame. And there's another moment when the son is going to go into surgery and he's young, I'd say like 10 or 11 maybe, and he's nervous and scared. The dad, you can tell, is scared as well and won't go with him. But what the son takes away from that is, oh, my dad left me alone at this moment, which is, of course, reminiscent when Watanabe is talking about his own parents and this moment when he almost drowned and they didn't save him. It's this idea of this kind of filmmaking that's both so small in scope, but so wide in terms of what it's giving you within someone's life is that he chose to hang on to that moment of how he remembered his parents and maybe his son did as well and that influenced all of his treatment of his father later on. Those things are incredible. Not a lot of films that have that texture to them. It's very relatable. I was just having this discussion with my own family about how you hold on to things, usually the bad stuff about your parents or other people in your life, and you can immediately draw on those elements of this person failed me. You remember the hard thing. What Kurosawa is saying is that it's not always enough to be a good person that we remember failure more than success. And that's generational. That's something that lingers for each successive generation. Watanabe doesn't try to undo what his parents did 
to him with his own son. He just falls into the complacency of parenting, much like he falls into a similar complacency with his job. What you said of that people hold on to the bad thing. Let's say you have a friend and all you're doing is ever complaining about your partner to them. They're going to be like, your partner is terrible. And then you're like, no, I just don't tell you the good stuff. I feel like I've been watching a lot of Japanese cinema because early Easter egg for everybody, we're planning on recording a double featured episode on Godzilla. So I watched the 1954 feature Gojira a couple of days ago, which I had not seen in a very long time before I watched this. Japanese cinema in the 50s is a really intriguing time because it's after Reconstruction, right? After the nuclear bombing and after World War II, when Watanabe is talking about the historical legacy of his own family, and you're looking at the sense of business that is happening in this town, everybody is still grappling internally with the results of what has happened to them as a country. They are very Western with their look and their sense of bureaucracy. But at the same time, there is still this resentment. All these characters are still resentful. They're still unhappy. They're still set in these ways of feeling like nothing's ever going to get any better for them. So why even bother? A lot of that probably is standing in for this bigger allegory of how Japanese people had to feel after the wake of World War II. You're here for the smart stuff. (laughs) I really like that. You both have brought up points with other films too, that the historical context that you get when you're considering classic film is so unique and such a great additional insight because you can't see what's happening within a moment while you're in the moment. And it's another reason that in looking at this film or in trying to make sure that I'm ingesting films from other cultures as I also am consuming a lot of stuff that's more escapist because like Sam, I also prefer that. This is like a way that you learn the world. You can learn a specific time and place. It's not a history lesson. So there's nothing in this that's forthright about, all right, in 1952, this was the general mindset in Japan. What you're gleaning instead is the fact that the film is portraying all of this in this way is telling me something indirectly and therefore probably more meaningful, that educational experience. Was there anything that stood out to you in terms of the filmmaking? Because I think regardless of language or background or culture, there's so many interesting filmmaking techniques put in He's doing stuff reminiscent of a lot of our favorite directors, or maybe, like you said, they did it reminiscent of him. There are a few sections where the camera is locked off and then the people are moving within the frame, like when he's in the waiting room waiting to get this cancer diagnosis. And this man is telling him, well, if they tell you this, it means that you have this. And then if they tell you this, It means you're going to die in a year. And it gets worse and worse. And he keeps shifting his seat closer and closer to the camera. And then there's other stuff that's much more cinematic and the camera is moving around. Going back to that silent era filmmaking, one of the scenes that really stood out to me in particular is the scene where Watanabe is on the swing with the snow and he's singing the gondola song. It was a splice of two different silent film scenes that are very iconic. For one thing, it reminded me a lot of Greta Garbo and John Gilbert in Flesh and the Devil, where you have the snow and it's a very beautiful, tragic scene that speaks a lot without saying anything. It's really interesting that Kurosawa would, I'm not sure if he necessarily used it as a reference, but if he did, it would be very fascinating because silent films, they're such a universal language. So I wouldn't be too surprised if there was some influence pulled from there. I did not think of that at all, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That pouring of the snow, it's so beautiful, but so tragic. In that scene in Ikuru, there's not even a romance. It's not this sordid 
romantic tale. It's just one person and his troubles, which in that sense, it reminds me a lot of Charlie Chaplin in The Gold Rush, where he has the scene he's alone at his own dinner party depressed forlorn figure who doesn't have anybody in the world but still wants to do a good thing for people that tramp character that tragic figure reminded me a lot of his character in Ikuru too the tramp was always unique sometimes he did things for the like kiss on the cheek and the accolade but there was such an inherent loneliness it was never really a sense of doing it for like some large-scale credit, which is the other thing that Akur has. Absolutely. The Tramp is a lot more of a pitiful character. He's a vagabond approaching all these beautiful women trying to get their affections, but you never think of him as a creep. And it's because he's such an adorable, pitiful guy. You can think of Watanabe in a similar way. You just feel bad for him. Well, that's a big element of it, right? As I was saying in the synopsis, there's the young woman who's representative of living a life full of purpose and joy. When he encounters her and kind of is asking her why she's happy, what it is that she's figured out, there's something so naturally sympathetic about his character and also how he's talking to her. I'm always on the lookout for the creep zone. When is this exchange going to be inappropriate? Also, I've seen plenty of movies, movies, I've seen plenty of news stories where the older guy decides he's going to like revitalize his life by interjecting it with some young woman. There was something in this film, as much as it has to do with his son and with the people he works with, it's not a relationship movie. It is a movie about one person. And when he starts interacting with the girl and she does at a point kind of question him of like, why are you asking me these questions? Why are you interested? Why are you hanging around me? I wasn't worried that it was going to turn into him being obsessed with her in that way. But I also could see very much that a lot of people would have made that turn with the movie. Exactly. You almost expect it from that kind of a relationship. So it's really refreshing that that doesn't happen here. He genuinely is curious about her secret to life. He thinks that she has the secret to life. I also appreciated that she's aware of all the conventions that this relationship could fall into. She says flat out, I'm not into a May-December romance. She wasn't dumb. She didn't blindly go along with it and at the same time he's not into a relationship either when they say at the end oh his girlfriend his son is the one who says maybe she wasn't his girlfriend at all he just appreciates having somebody there whose life is not over the fact that she's at this peak part in her life where she's still young life hasn't beaten the happiness out of her she can still laugh at work that's what he's attracted to, not her physically. It's contrasted nicely with the novelist that he meets, who he spends the time out in the nightclub areas with. He could have easily devolved into this hedonistic debauchery because he doesn't care about his life anymore, but he's the one who realizes that that's not what he wants. He's not looking for some passing pleasures in life he just wants somebody who's going to help him navigate what little life he has left well it's an interesting twist on the or origin of the manic pixie dream girl right of the character who comes in and just has all of this like liveliness but what kurosawa does with her is allows her to be a beacon and something for him to aspire to and be inspired by but she's not motivated at all to be just helping him. She's on that course regardless, and either he's going to take note of it and change his own life or he's not, which is so nice. It's so interesting, too, that you bring up the whole manic pixie dream girl thing, because the more I think about this film, the more I am comparing it in my head. There are so many 
different situations through history that have the similar theme with the middle-aged or older guy who's wondering what life's all about, not necessarily dying himself, but he is in a rut in his life and he finds the younger pretty girl who seems to have it all figured out and they all go through life together. Like I said, all through history, you've got the apartment, you've got something like I Love You, Alice B. Toklas with counterculture. And then in modern film, the one that really keeps popping into my head is Yes Man with Jim Carrey and Zoe Deschanel. Not quite as serious as this film, of course, because it's a comedy, but it's just so reminiscent of that relationship. But this one's also different because it's so genuine you can't really read into it as he's using her for any romantic purposes or something dishonorable. I love those. And I totally agree. Again, we're using the term, which is a really modern term, but the twisting of the manic pixie dream girl convention here, a convention that existed decades after this film, everyone else that utilizes that, also wants to and gets to make out with that woman. There's something about this raw form, and I don't know if it's if it is anything that can be attributed to cultural elements, but the idea of just a platonic inspirational relationship rather than this woman is so wonderful. I want to be inspired and also possess her in every way. It's something I'd love to see more films take heart of. I'm also obsessed with the idea of finding more films that that are more about one person's personal discovery and less about a relationship. And in a very strange way, a modern film that this came to mind was Castaway, the Tom Hanks. That's Zemeckis, right? Yeah, it is. I really want to hear this. This is an interesting comparison. <laughs> Well, A, their running time, first and foremost, I'm just kidding, that there's something about the idea of a central story being a person's individual journey. There's the romantic sort of bookends of it. Likewise, with this film, there's the implication that he was in a loving relationship with the wife and was destroyed when he lost her. There's something about men being on their own, a singular storyline. No one else knows what's going on with them. In Tom Hanks' case, it's because he's marooned on an island. Watanabe is just not sharing with people what he's going through. And they are endeavoring to find some purpose in their existence. It's an existence they can see the corners of, either because they are facing down their own mortality or because they are in these unique circumstances but it is an existence that they can either end, they can drink when Watanabe goes to the bar and he knows if he has any alcohol, that will be the end of it for him. And there's like a suicide attempt within Castaway, or they can find purpose. They can do something with it. They can endeavor change. That's the shape of it. There aren't a lot of films that have that singular quest that has to do with meaning I'd have to flesh it out better if I was going to, you know, write a term paper about it. I bet if I did some late night cramming. To contrast that is how this movie looks at the individual versus the government, which was something I was really surprised that I was drawn to with this movie. Almost in a way that they did in a movie that came out later here in the States, 12 Angry Men. The second half of this movie just becomes a camera looking at a bunch of men in one small isolated room talking about different interpretations of how they look at a situation, which I believe I was wrong when I said that Ran is the Macbeth Kurosawa movie. I think that's Throne of Blood. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. It's Throne of Blood. Yep. That's correct. Yeah. I'm apologizing to whoever is sitting there right now being like, this woman's lost all credibility. She confused movies. Rashomon is the one where they tell the story from different points of view, correct? Yes. I was wondering if it was Kurosawa doing himself, because the second half of this movie is just individual characters saying, 
I saw this as well. Well, then I saw it a different way. And they're all discussing whether Watanabe knew he was dying or not. And I was really pulled into that story. You don't have the central character at all, but each of them is trying to figure out why he died in the park. Was it a suicide attempt? Did he just die of exposure? Was he old? And all of them are very committed to finding out if he knew he was dying. It's reminiscent of when people do kill themselves. And you're always saying, was there something I missed? They are determined on discovering whether he knew he was dying. A lot of that is because of how they would react. They're internalizing it through their own personal experience. It's not necessarily what he is thinking, but if what he was thinking would be different from what they would do. One of the realest parts of this movie is his wake, where all of his co-workers and everybody that he knows gathers and just starts to try to make something of his death and of these last few months. You're right, it is very comparable to Rashomon, where it goes into each person's perspective. I really love the characters that step forward and make sure that he gets credit for building the playground. You could still see that some of these characters, even after his death at his funeral of all places, are still very self-serving and not wanting to give him credit, wanting to take credit for themselves of what he accomplished. You could definitely make that comparison. It's interesting that you pointed that out before I did and you haven't even seen the movie. I love that you said that too, because if I may, Roger Ebert has an incredible review of Ikaru. He apparently loved it and watched it numerous times. When I was going through things for today's talk, this just stood out to me as this beautiful analysis or insight. Ebert's talking about that moment at the wake when we're watching how they talk and we know what they're processing. And he says, mentally, we urge the survivors to think differently, to arrive at our conclusions. And that is how Kurosawa achieves his final effect. He makes us not witnesses to Watanabe's decision, but evangelists for it, which I think is so cool. It is this very surreptitious shaping of the whole story that by the time you get to the end, when we've seen what he's gone through, the decisions that he's made, and then how the people at the wake, which I agree with Sam is my favorite part of it. You don't realize this is a story that's been dropping all these breadcrumbs that's, that's allowing us to interact with it in this way until you get to that scene of these people either making assumptions or being just clueless and how they're processing it is incredible because you are rooting so actively for them to know what he did. That's good filmmaking, you guys. <laughs> it becomes this twisted type of story at that second half of the movie because the first half is all about Watanabe physically the fact that he is trying to cope with knowing that he is going to die not to go way existential but was it Nietzsche who says we all know we're dying anytime a baby is born it's just walking its way to its death there's a distinction that's being made when you are given a terminal illness because you are more aware that you are dying than if you're just existing you have that whole first half of the movie where it's him trying to find some way of living out his life. The creation of the park, we never see it. We're told about it and we get little snatches of it through flashbacks in the second half of the movie. But you're really only hearing about it through hearsay, through other people's interpretations, who has the true story and who doesn't. So the second half of the movie, when it becomes about who gets credit, the co-workers say, I don't know why he thinks he deserves all this credit, he didn't really do anything. If the mayor wasn't up for re-election, it wouldn't have mattered. Kurosawa turns this into a condemnation of Japanese government and bureaucracy, which is that no one does anything selflessly. It is always motivated by another interest. This is where I think it turns into Capra, but I think Capra's a bit more optimistic than Kurosawa is, because here, the little guy serves no real purpose in the end of it. He knows and maybe one other person knows what he did when it comes to any long-lasting sense of legacy. When it involves a corporate interest or a government interest, you will never get the recognition that you 
truly deserve. The end of this I find so heartbreaking because that realization is very depressing. I think living with that feeling would be the worst. What did you guys think of the ending, of the idea that there is a moment when it looks like maybe a spark was lit, maybe this thing that he learned only because of the dire straits he was in and he picked up some knowledge of this woman, maybe that would transcend and pass along and then it sputters out. There's two ways to approach it. And I think this is how Kurosawa wants you to approach it. The individual versus the group, which the individual will always have those moments of asking tough questions when something really bad happens. You argue with somebody and then you say, as of tomorrow, I'm just going to cut them out. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm done. You see this with relationships. Couple has an argument and they're like, we're done. We're not going to do this anymore. And then a couple days pass, they're back together. How many people have near-death experiences? And they're like, I'm going to go to the gym and lose weight and I'm going to stop smoking. I've had this realization. And sometimes that takes, sometimes it doesn't. Some people do make those grand changes, but other times people don't. When it comes to a government entity, though, you always have those moments where somebody gets called out and they're like, we're going to change. And then they don't. Watching these men all say, we're going to start living for the people and we're not going to fall into complacency and we're going to do things better. And they don't. And one person stands up and looks at the guy at the end with the realization that we've fallen back into old ways. It's Kurosawa at his most inflammatory and this is coming out after world war ii after reconstruction for that one person to stand up and look at the new section chief we look at it on the world stage now japan was destroyed utterly by nuclear power it would have been this moment to say to the u.s we're not doing business with you we're done this is never going to happen again, and we don't need you. The move at the end of the film is almost saying, no, we totally bought into Western expansion. This is what we are now. So I feel like there's this, this multi-layered approach where he's looking at individual response, which might yield some change, government response, which pats itself on the back when one or two things pass, and then the global significance, which is that Japan as a country went right back to interacting the way they were with the U.S. They're the whip dog. They've been beaten, and they're not going to do anything to change that. Wowza. <laughs> You're getting really deep here, Christine. I'm sorry, but I think Kurosawa would want it that way. That's exactly That's what he would want. The only thing that the ending makes me think about is that this type of movie with that ending could not be made by a major studio and released today. I really don't think so. As you guys have mentioned, and I've mentioned too, there are a lot of modern counterparts to this type of plot where you have the, the middle-aged or older person who finds out that they have a terminal illness. And usually it's a very inspirational movie where they travel abroad and find themselves and fall in love. And that's just the meaning of life. And by the end of it, they may die or they may not, but it's a happy ending and everything's better. That's not this movie at all. I don't think that a modern, especially Western audience could sell this movie effectively with that mindset. I don't think that they would dare. I agree with you because DreamWorks optioned this film in like 2004 and wanted to make it with Tom Hanks and Jim Sheridan was attached to direct. How many years ago now? They never made it. And my guess is because they kept facing the same elements of what we're talking about, that what makes this movie as thought-provoking and rich as it is, is that it's the singular journey and that it has that unique split. We are very, as viewers, personally tied to seeing what he's making as decisions when confronted with the end of his life. And then we see the people responding without that same knowledge. So there's something about the philosophies of it. There's something about the film structure of it, which I think would be crucial. I think if you remade it without that 
split in perspectives. It would not be anywhere near as poignant as it is. There's no way this would be made now without some kind of love interest involved and threaded through. That's what the important thing about this film is, what sets it apart from similar plots, is at the end of the day, he doesn't need the acceptance of his child. He doesn't need a love interest to make him fulfilled. He doesn't need anything except that one small victory in his town, that one accomplishment that he can feel good about without anyone else even knowing about it. And I don't think that someone raised on Western values and someone with a Western imperialist mindset would be satisfied with those things. I don't think a modern audience would feel satisfied by someone who felt satisfied with those things. As sad as if I was an old man sitting on a swing set on a deserted playground in the middle of the night facing my own death. That is literally the saddest, most beautiful image I've seen in a film in a long time. Because on an individual level, it's got to be heartening. The fact that he did change something. He did create something that will last longer than him. And that he can enjoy it and that he's helped others. But when you pull back and you look at it in the grand context of a person's life, that that is the only thing that he's ever done and that he won't even be remembered for it. It's almost like, and I hate to keep throwing Capper in here, but if anybody's seen Make Way for Tomorrow, the final images of the old couple parting, and they'll probably never see each other again. It reminds me of that, these moments that just feel so bittersweet. That's what it is. It's the definition of the word bittersweet. Bittersweet would actually would have been a great title for them to release this in. They actually titled it Doomed in the American release. Well, that's America for you. Are you serious? (laughs) That's American commentary, if nothing else. (laughs) Right? Because obviously the image of this should be the man on the swing, but apparently not only did the American release call it doomed, for some of their primary art, they used a photo of one of the sex workers from when he goes out on the town. Go USA. Oh, no. How are you guys feeling about me asking you to spend two and a half hours of your June sunshine watching this beautifully meditative, super bummer Japanese film? I like that you suggested it. A key portion of why I created this podcast was to make classic films accessible to new audiences. And that stands for me as well. I don't posit that I've seen every film ever made. So watching something like this is out of my comfort zone and being able to look at it both as a Westerner and as a lover of film was really good. I can't tell you that I would watch it again because it probably would depress me. It did remind me that I need to see more Kurosawa films because he's a name we know for a reason. All I'm going to say is if we get another Kurosawa film in here, we better have some Mufune as well, or I'm going to throw a riot. I hear you. I hear you on that one, lady. Well, I'm grateful you guys took this journey with me, and I've really liked your insights on it. And I feel good about all the vitamins I took in while watching this film, so that now I can go back and just watch some of my favorite kind of slap-happy fluff. Drea, we appreciate you giving us some unique films to look at. I can't wait till we open up suggestions for the next crop of episodes. That's going to be the new thing, the Drea surprise. (laughs) I am so ready for it. The Drea surprise. I'm into it. I love this movie too. It brought in all of those things. Foreign films and silent films to me are synonymous with discovery. And this film was such a discovery for me, not only because it was a foreign film, pretty much new to me actors, and I know that the lead was also a supporting actor in Rashomon. This was such a discovery for me as a concept and as a plot. Because like I said, every time that we have seen this plot done in film, it's handled very differently in the West. I was just so marveled by it, by the complete retelling of this age-old story of a person finding a new lease on life. And, and I really loved it. I did. So thank you, Drea, too, from me. Yay, go team!
listeners, send us your thoughts on Ikaru Akira Kurosawa. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. Before we get into all the closing stuff, Sam, you want to throw out where fans can get in touch with you, promote anything? Well, you can find me blogging at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com and you can find me on Twitter at classicfilmgeek. Next month, you'll find my newest Cooking with the Stars post on classicmoviehub.com. I have my monthly column there, so go check it out. Drea Clark, where are you online? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, doing a lot of stuff on Who Shot Your Podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. We are going to be doing a Ticklish Biz movie night at the end of June. That's right. Because we hit our Patreon goal of $30. We decided that we would celebrate by streaming a movie that everybody can watch with all of us. This is not going to be patrons only. It's going to be for anybody who wants to show up. It's going to be June 29th at 5 o'clock Pacific time, 8 o'clock Eastern. We're going to be watching the Doris Day feature Calamity Jane. Now, we're still working on all the fine-tuning details. We'll announce those as they happen, but all you'll need is a computer and an internet connection, and you can watch Calamity Jane with a bunch of like-minded nerds. That's again June 29th at 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern. Stay tuned for more information on that. It's my favorite Doris film. It'll probably be the fifth or sixth time I've watched it just this year, but I'm into it. I'm ready. It will be the second time I've ever watched it. If you want a homoerotic film, just saying. I know, yes. I wrote a whole paper about it back in college. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can listen to Ticklish Business a variety of different ways, either directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. We're on Stitcher Radio and Player FM. We're also on SoundCloud and Spotify. As always, you can contact me directly at ticklishbiz, that's B-I-Z, at gmail.com. And you can visit me at my official website where I discuss classic films regularly, journeysinclassicfilm.com. If you're on Twitter, be sure to follow ticklish underscore biz to get all sorts of news, updates, Find out when episodes are coming out. If you want to learn about upcoming episodes, get pins, get exclusive content before anyone else, then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We have a wealth of amazing perks. All your donations go right back into making Ticklish Business the classic film podcast that it is. If you become a patron right now, you can get access to up to two exclusive Ticklish Business buttons. You get to listen to these episodes a whole 48 hours early and We have a wealth of bonus content. William Bibiani and I are going to be restarting our podcast on how Hollywood looks at itself with the show based on a true podcast. We're going to be talking about the Lifetime original movie, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe, starring Kelly Garner and Susan Sarandon. That's going to be happening soon. And Adam Kautzer and I are also going to be talking about the 1954 and 2014 versions of Godzilla on the bonus show Doubled Features, looking at the movies that Hollywood films again and again and again. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And if you want to learn more about the stars turning 100, we're not talking about it on the show, but if you are a member of TCM's exclusive fan club, TCM Backlot, you can read my year-long series about the stars spotlighted there on my centennial celebrations. This month, we're going to be talking about Jack Palance. I've never actually watched a Jack Palance movie, so it'll be very unique to delve into his work. Next time, going along with our Calamity Jane film viewing, we are going to be honoring Doris Day by doing a top three. That seemed the easiest thing to do than picking just one movie. So we're going to be doing our top three favorite Doris Day films. So that'll be next time. Next time.